welcome back. In today's episode, I'm joined by Ros Atkins. Ros is a BBC presenter and journalist, and he's now the author of a new book all about the importance of explanation and communication. Now, I received a copy of this book and I went through it really quickly and I started, as soon as I started reading this book, I started underlining things, highlighting things, and it's a really, really actionable book. It's something that you feel like I'm learning something that I can actually put into practice today, tomorrow. It's really, really fantastic, really practical. I love a non-fiction practical book. So what I wanted to say before we dive into this week's episode is that some people might think, okay, well, I'm not a presenter, I'm not a news presenter and I'm not somebody who does a lot of public speaking so is explanation is communication are these skills important to me and what I would say is that in the modern world the digital age that we live in communication and the skills required to share ideas and to storytell are more important than ever before now I see this in so many of the things that I do not just as a podcast host or as a speaker but in meetings that I go into when I work with startups when I work with companies that are trying to raise money and I look at their pitch deck and I I help them to to think about how they're going to tell the story like storytelling is such an important skill and it's something I've been talking to my son about as well and being able to communicate sharing ideas with other people and and being able to do so with enthusiasm and passion but also with data it's really really powerful so bear that in mind as we listen to this week's episode welcome to the power hour i'm adrienne herbert wellness coach international speaker and author each week i speak to a variety of guests from business founders to olympic athletes leading coaches change makers and innovators to find out their daily habits their rules to live by and what motivates them to get up out of bed each day Personally, I am on a mission to encourage, motivate and inspire. So I hope that the Power Hour will help you to achieve your personal and professional goals. Welcome back to the Power Hour podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Today, I'm joined by Ros Atkins, a journalist, BBC News analyst, editor and presenter. Ros, welcome to the show. Adrian, thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to diving into this conversation with you as a podcast host and public speaker. Communication and sharing ideas, speaking to lots of people is something that I have spent a lot of time learning, practicing, continuing to develop. It's something I'm always trying to get better at. I believe that storytelling and the ability to communicate ideas in an effective way, in an engaging way is a real skill and an art. And I think that when we look to the future, and we look to future trends and AI and different jobs and disruption, I think storytelling and communication is going to be more important than ever. So the good news is that it is a skill and any skill can be improved just like playing tennis, baking a cake, uh, anything you can improve by deliberate practice, repetition, and communication is no exception. So of course, Roz, you are an expert communicator and your job requires you to share news information and ideas to millions of people often live on tv so and you also have your explainer videos as well online which some of them have gone viral and and had millions of views and now you've written the book the art of explanation so you really are the go-to person right now when it comes to communication and specifically explanation so i guess my first question would be over to you could you explain to us why specifically explanation is so important well, thank you very much indeed for that uh, introduction. Let me uh, 
see if I can do that. So for me, explanation is about working out precisely what you want to say, working out the information that you need in order to say that, and then calibrating all of that information so that you deliver it to whoever it's intended for in the way that they are most likely to want to consume and most likely to be able to understand. And within that, explanation is both about the substance of what you're saying, but also the style. You could have the best information in the world, but if you haven't calibrated it for the people that you're passing it on to, that might not be enough. Equally, you might have the best presentation style in the world, but if the information you're passing on isn't particularly relevant to the people you're talking to, the fact that you can do it with a certain style, that might not be enough. So for me, when I set out to write this book, it was an effort to say, look, all of these things fall within explanation. If you want to be effective at communicating, you need to have a process to identify, distill, and package up the information you've got. And then you also need to have skills and techniques to help you deliver that information as effectively as possible. And if you can do the two things in sync, and you can do them from the smaller moments in our day-to-day -day working life up to the bigger moments, such as job interviews or a high-profile presentation, the, the impact can be significant. It can be transformational in terms of the responses and the outcomes that you get from the people you're talking to. One thing I thought about as you were describing that was you said who you're talking to. And I think for a lot of people, maybe that's the missing piece. They might know the subject matter. They might be like, okay, this is what I want to talk about. This is what I want to present about. These are the ideas I want to get across. But they don't always consider the audience. So who am I speaking to? And do I need to adapt or change? And do you think, because for example, if you're presenting to more than one person there might be lots of different people that you're speaking to how much do you think how much do you think people need to adapt and change and shift their own communication style depending on who they're talking to or, or when is it appropriate to say you know often the advice I hear people say is just be yourself you know just do it deliver it as, as you would if you were talking to a friend it's not always um, appropriate to do that so I think the advice of being yourself is is good advice. I think inauthentic communicators don't get too far and people who are clearly communicating as themselves largely connect with their audiences more effectively. However, if you or I think about the different circumstances and how we communicate, if I'm in the pub with some friends, how I'm telling a story is not going to be the same as when I'm sitting in a meeting with my boss. It's not going to be the same as when I meet uh, the publishers who have who've kindly published my book. We all while being authentic to ourselves, alter how we communicate in our day-to-day -day lives because that's appropriate. And I suppose what I'm advocating is that we do that more consciously in all of our interactions mm. because one of the things that turns off people you're communicating with is if they feel what you're saying is not for them. Or to put that in a more positive fashion, if they feel that what you're saying is for them, they are going to be paying much, much, much more attention. So let's take a reasonably day-to-day -day example. If you send a group email to 20 people and everyone who receives that thinks, okay, I've kind of seen that, but that's not really for me specifically, the chance of them responding is really low. If you sent a group email which said, uh, this is going to a range of you, I've got actually different questions for different people. So those in sales, please, can you help me with this? Those in marketing, please, can you help me with this? Well, the salespeople are going to go, okay, that bit's for me, and they're much more likely to respond. Or, for example, I used to host a, a phone-in on the BBC World Service for a number of years. 
if you were asking for a response from the audience, asking them what they thought, let's imagine, let's take a general uh, subject like climate change, and you were asking, is your government doing enough about climate change? If you just said that, you might get a certain response. But if you went, if you're listening in America, we'd particularly like to hear what you think of what your president's doing. If you're listening in Nigeria, what's the what's the policy of your government? Tell us what you think. If you're listening in uh, Singapore, we'd like your perspective. You would hear from the people in those countries because they felt like they were being addressed directly. And so you can't do that effectively unless you stop and think about who am I talking to? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a really great example. And I think, as you said, there are so many different areas of our lives which require us to communicate. And that could be one-to-one, it could be face-to-face. And it, of course, like we are right now, can be online. And the digital age provides a variety of ways for us to communicate 24-7 from text to instant message to email to social media, video calls, online learning. You know, it goes on and on and on. And it's probably going to increase even more if we all start wearing uh, headsets. So... Do you think that all of these different routes to communication are beneficial? Do you think that we're all um, learning more, sharing more, communicating more? Or do you think that that's actually making it harder for people to communicate? I suppose there's more room for misinterpretation potentially um, when you're taking out some of the areas of being face to face, seeing someone's body language, you know, having the opportunity to respond. So, yeah, I suppose what what's the pros and the cons? So... The pros would be that our ability to connect with people all around the world is clearly escalating upwards and the different ways that we can communicate with people is escalating upwards. So the opportunities are greater than they would have been when I started my career 25 years ago. And on the face of it, that's exciting. Clearly, there are uh, major challenges that come with that. The first challenge would be there's just too much information, too much communication all around us. It's infinite. It's impossible for any of us to stay on top of on top of that and that is of course a challenge both as a consumer but also as someone who's trying to communicate in that environment but i also think there's an opportunity there which is if you can communicate very effectively people are glad of it so you you'll know the feeling right you get up in the morning and you're like this goodness there's just too much coming at me i can't keep on top of this and you might get an email or a message or a video message or you might be watching something or listening to something and you'll be thinking I just wish they'd give me what I would like to know from this more effectively, more efficiently. And if as a communicator, you can do that, Mm. if you are communicating effectively, it's not just good for you because people are hearing you loud and clear, but it's actually good for the person you're communicating with because you're, you're saving them time. And when I was writing the book, I interviewed this fantastic academic at Harvard University called Todd Rogers. And he has particularly studied how we consume short written communications. So that might be WhatsApps, messenger messages, emails, and so on. And he has this phrase for long emails, which he calls an unkind tax. And I'd never thought of it in these terms, but this is, I, I really like this because he's essentially saying, when you send a long, unfocused piece of communication, not only is it not serving your interests, you're actually asking the person you're sending it to to put in the work to try and find what they need in and amongst all this other stuff. The the more positive view of that is if you don't do that, people are really glad because they get what they want from you as, a, as effectively as possible. So there are opportunities for us all to, to stand out. I do think, though, that 
coming right back to your question of how do we navigate this digital world and the fact that we are communicating often not in person and in lots of different digital forms, we need to accept a couple of things. One is that we're in an exceptionally competitive environment. So if what you're communicating isn't really good, it's likely to lose out to other stuff that's competing for other people's attention. And then the other thing is you need to be realistic about how quickly you need to get people's attention. This doesn't mean that everything you do has to be short, but I do think in those first few moments that you have when people are, are considering whether they're going to spend more time looking at whatever you've got to say, you need to come in and get their attention and say, please spend a bit more time with me because what I've got to tell you is of interest. Yeah, it's a fine balance, isn't it? Because I think that you're right. Often people, if I, I know myself, if I receive a really, really long email and you kind of, like you say, you might even skim read it and think, okay, gets to the point. Or myself, if I'm sending something to somebody else, you might think, okay, how can I make it, you know, short and sweet? And I think, as you said, it's it's almost the, the world, you know, the rushing, the pace of everything being quick, 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 consume. You know, we get told, I'm sure you've seen some of this information about video consumption and that if someone's watching a video online, they have to be, I suppose, engaged or hooked or whatever the word you would use within three seconds or they'll scroll to the next piece of content, they'll scroll to the next picture, the next video. And I think the detrimental thing about that is that everyone's almost shouting, you know, everyone's almost yelling and being like, look at this, look at this, look at this, look at this really quick because, you know, they know that we're going to, you know, it's difficult, I suppose, to have that depth and long content and long form and all, things like podcasting, I suppose, are long form. But I think it's difficult for people to find that balance between saying, I have something important and wonderful to share, but I'm not necessarily going to be able to grab your attention in three seconds. But I wonder if there are two things here which can both be true. One is that we are in an exceptionally competitive digital environment where we're all communicating with people who have too much stuff coming at them. And as such, quite quickly, we need to make our pitch to people that they should continue giving us their attention. But I think it's also true, there's lots of evidence, and your podcast would be one piece of evidence, that if the content is sufficiently engaging and relevant and enjoyable and helpful and all of those things, that people will consume at length. YouTube's got lots of data to show that people will watch videos at huge length if they feel that the video is for them. Yeah. People listen to podcasts. Millions and millions of people listen to podcasts. Podcasts are often, I don't know what your average duration is, in the, around the hour mark or just below, there's lots of podcasts that are that long that are very successful like yours. And so for me, it's not that we're in a rush. It's not that everything has to be bang, 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 jump up and down, grab people's attention. Because let's imagine I jump up and down and shout and scream and say, look at me. If what I've got to say to you isn't interesting, isn't engaging, isn't helpful, isn't relevant to your life, I could jump up and down as much as I like. You're not going to you're not going to consume it. Or if you flip that round, if what I'm saying is relevant to you, is engaging, is easy to consume, is helpful, there's a good chance you're going to stick with me for a few minutes to mm. to hear that. And so I think the more positive message I would pass on based on my experience, uh, both explaining the news, but also trying to get different ideas off the ground, is that if what you have to say is something that you have really calibrated and put thought into and made engaging and made relevant and you've thought about what form it takes and who you're addressing actually there's a really good chance people will stay with you mm. yeah no i agree and you can tell as well when people have what i call is like 
do your homework you know you can tell when someone's done their homework or when something's generic and it's kind of just thrown out to everyone and anyone and as you said with the email example you're far less likely to respond because you can see you can kind of feel that they haven't put in much much effort really and I think a real tangible example for people so if people are thinking about okay when is it important when does communication become important to them in their lives they might think of an example like a job interview or a first date something where they feel like this is a significant moment where it's like I only have maybe someone might think they only have an hour or 30 minutes they want to you know leave a good impression they want to explain things well and it's something that I know people do struggle with sometimes people have said to me oh but you're you're extroverted and you're confident and you know you can sit there and explain you don't fumble over your words or you know you can answer questions on the spot and people will say to me I can do that when I'm just talking to you Adrian you're my friend but when I'm in that moment with my you know potential new employer or or on a date it's almost as though they're so overwhelmed with the pressure of communicating that it actually is really detrimental to their ability to just string sentences together so yeah what about in these significant moments what can people do I can totally relate to that I have been a broadcaster of one reporter and then a presenter uh, and correspondent for quite a long time now, almost 20 years. So I'm experienced at public speaking, both on the radio and the TV and also in person as well. But there are still moments in my life where I feel the pressure and where I think, am I going to be as coherent as I would like to be? And the advice I always give is the advice that I follow myself. So in advance of um, speaking to you and speaking to others about my book, I've made time to think about how do I want to talk about my book? And I've practiced talking about my book so that hopefully, I mean, people listening now can be the judge of it, but (laughs) hopefully I'm talking about it in a way that's helpful and that's coherent and that's consumable and clear and all the things I would like to be. But even though I'm relatively experienced at doing these kind of things, I still take the time to think about how I'm going to communicate and I still practice. And, you know, I was I was chatting to a, a former BBC colleague who now works for a company called Edelman, um, a guy called Ed Williams. And I gave him an advanced copy of my book the other day and we were talking about what it was. And he uh, he kind of shook the book in, in his hand and he kind of went, this is the case for preparation, isn't it? And I said, right, that's a great phrase. I'm going to borrow that. But, you know, with attribution, because really that's what the book is. The, the book is saying let's notice when we need to communicate effectively and then let's take the time to give ourselves the best chance so in the case of and i should say i'm definitely not going to be offering anyone advice on dating that's outside my (laughs) area of expertise but in terms of say going into an important job interview well i did a i've relatively recently about a year ago uh, become the BBC's analysis editor and of course i was interviewed for that job and in advance of that i thought about well, what are the subjects I'm likely to be talking about? And what's the information I need to talk about those subjects well? And how would I like to organize that information? And am I comfortable speaking out loud without notes on that information? And unsurprisingly, when I thought about that, some of the subjects I was fluent on, some of the subjects I could be more fluent on. So I practiced at home talking about those subjects so that the experience of handling that information and communicating it and using clear phrases and clear structures wasn't something that I was trying to come up with in the moment. It was something that I had already thought about because, Mm. and I'm sure there are brilliant exceptions to this, but my experience is that for most of us, if the first time we're saying something that really matters is the time when it really matters, you're taking a chance. 
and I've been fortunate enough with BBC News to cover lots of very big stories, lots of big uh, summits connected to Brexit or down in Downing Street when Boris Johnson was under pressure and lots of other examples. And in all those situations, when you're seeing me on the TV, I'm not saying these things for the very first time. I've thought about how I would like to talk about it. And it doesn't mean that I've learned whole paragraphs off by heart. I don't mean that. It just means that I've practiced using the information that I would like to communicate and practiced organizing it in different ways so that when I'm in that situation, doing that feels feels familiar. And that would always be my advice to people going into these uh, important moments is think about what you want to pass on the information, think about how you would like to do that and also practice doing it. Mm, oh my gosh this is it because the word practice you know practice it people think oh of course of course but actually I don't think people really do carve out space and time to practice or as I would say rehearse it I really don't think they do often people might say oh, I've written notes so people say to me I've written notes so I might write bullet points of what I want to talk about and I say okay you've written notes but in the interview are you going to write down your answer or are you going to say it out loud so, so, it's- so you're, you're, you know this is this is great advice that you're passing on because I would argue that producing bullet points around subjects you need to talk about is a great start yeah. but it's not the end of the process and I could give you an example of that in 2017 I was sent to cover the then Dutch general election and I was going to be there for most of the week and I'd done lots of homework with the help of my brilliant colleagues on the Dutch election so I was I was pretty up to date I had a lot of bullet points believe me <laughs> they went to pages and pages of bullet points and all the different parties and their policies and so on and so forth and I was sitting in a square in The Hague in the Netherlands just next to where the politicians are based and it was about an hour or two before my first live report and a colleague asked me a question I don't recall the question and as I was answering I was thinking I kind of know the answer to this because I've learned all this information but it's not coming out like I really hope it would and I realized that I hadn't verbalized it and I call this verbalization verbalization is absolutely crucial to communicating well I hadn't taken the time to verbalize the information that I'd learned and I was lucky on that day because I had time. And so we were based by this market, this beautiful market in The Hague, people selling secondhand books and clothes and food and so on. And I just wandered around on my own, talking to myself, going, right, imagine you get a question about this. What are you going to say? And the yep. first time I would do it, it was quite painful and it wouldn't flow and I wasn't happy with the structure and I wasn't happy with the clarity. But the good news is within two or three goes, quite quickly, my mind and my... Had, had got used to handling that because I already knew the information I just hadn't practiced handling it and verbalizing it and so for me it, that is just the most important thing and the the advice I always give to people when they ask me about this because sometimes people say I feel a bit silly doing it and I always say I feel silly doing it but just do it anyway like yeah. if you're at home talking to yourself you're going to feel like a bit of a lemon sometimes just don't worry about it it's worth yeah. it's worth doing Absolutely. And I think it's just, you're totally right. Write the bullet points if that helps you. Get clarity, learn the information, but don't stop there because, as you said, verbalizing, saying it out loud, hearing it and thinking, you know, I, I change my presenting style, my interviewing style. I think I always got told, so when I, I've always enjoyed speaking, no surprise there, I always got told when I was really young, I always got told, Adrienne, you speak far too quickly, you speak too fast. Yes, you've got a lot of energy, but people need to understand what you're saying. And I always used to think, and 
when you hear the same piece of feedback time and time again, you should, if you're self-aware enough, you should take it on. But initially I used to think, no, actually, some people speak in a very relaxing, slow way. And I was like, that's not me. I have got energy and I'm going to speak. That's how I am. But actually, eventually, I think it sunk in that if you really want people to hear what you're saying, process it, engage with it, listen, and actually understand, then you might have to adapt your, not not change your whole style, but you might have to just speak maybe 10% slower. And it's like, okay. That is so interesting because when I was getting going as a presenter, so this is a while ago now, almost 20 years ago, I was really keen to be an energetic presenter, someone who the audience engaged with, someone who felt like you were saying to the audience, hey, look, let's go. We've got some interesting stuff to talk about. And after a couple of years, you know, a couple of colleagues whose views I really did hold in high regard said, look, you're, you're talking quite quickly here. You're making it harder for people to understand what you're saying. And I said, all right, I mean, I'm not dismissing your feedback, but I want to be energetic. I want to be engaging. I don't want to feel too flat when I'm on air. And they said, well, why don't you just try keeping the same tone, but dialing the speed down? And I tried it and then I listened back and I was like, goodness, why was I not doing this before? Because it's just great, great advice because I didn't trade in any of the things that I wanted, which was to be engaging and sound like I was really uh, interested and motivated in the subjects that we were talking about. But you could just take it in a bit more because I was just just speaking a little bit slower. Mm. And that was just an invaluable piece of advice because I had equated speed with quality and engagement and it was the wrong equation. Yeah. Sounds like we and kind I, of took sounds like we both took kind of different routes <laughs> to the same place. Yeah, and I think the reason I bring it up as well is for the listeners to think actually when you get given feedback if you practice, if you ask somebody, okay, can you watch my presentation or can you, I don't know, role play some question and answer with me, actually take the feedback because sometimes when we get feedback about the way we present, the way we speak, it can feel quite personal, people can feel a bit offended and it can just, you know, it doesn't feel great. But actually, if you take the feedback on board, it is hopefully going to make you yeah, a more effective communicator. And also what people can hear from both of us is that it is something you can improve. It's not something that, you know, you made those changes. I've made those changes. And hopefully, as I said, continuing to always do that. That's also a key part. People think they either can or they can't, but you can continue to get better. Absolutely. And I would also say that that work doesn't stop. I still review what I do in public, whether as a journalist or as a speaker, routinely. I still routinely send my work to people who I hold in high regard and say, tell me where I'm going wrong. I still try and improve what I'm doing. It's not like I thought, oh, okay, I've cracked it now, so you know, I'll just get on with the rest of my life. I don't see it like that at all. The, the book's called The Art of Explanation because this is an art, not a science. There's no definitive, correct way of doing it. And you know, one of the things that I hope comes through in the book is that I've received a lot of direct and indirect advice and things that have given me pause for thought about how I communicate and have tried to take that and, and build it into how I'm, hmm. how I'm, how I'm doing it. And yeah. Uh, yeah, if you don't listen to what people have to say, you're missing a trick because they're, they're yeah. offering you invaluable ways of getting better. And I'll be honest with you, Ros and the listeners, there is so much of that in this book. So in your book, I was uh, fortunate enough to receive an early copy from the publishers. Now, often I listen to audio books. Uh, I listen when I'm out running. I listen when I'm cooking, driving. So audio is my favorite way to, to consume content. But I received um, the copy digitally on PDF. 
And I was like, okay, I'm going to read this. And I read the book and honestly, I found myself highlighting, copying, like highlighting as if I had a pen to underline things because there are so many examples, so many things that are super helpful, practical things. Honestly, I'm a practical person. There's nothing worse for me. There's nothing worse for me than listening to something that's really kind of maybe personal to the person. And I'm thinking, well, how does that apply? How can I actually apply this? So there's so much information in there. And not just about, we've, we've spoken a lot so far about presenting and speaking and questions and interviews, but actually the things that I took away the most were probably about explanation when it comes to writing. So whether that's emails and we do communicate a lot, I think, I think, I don't know the stat, but people send a lot and a, a surprising amount of emails every single day, especially if you work in the corporate world. So some examples that I've written down, actually, things like the reason that this matters is so I, I highlighted that, I underlined that. I also underlined, to understand this, we need to remember that, then put the information. And one more I wrote down was, this is important beyond the immediate consequences because. Now, the reason I did this is because often I think when we have a lot of information about a subject or about an idea or about a proposal or something that we're working on, we all we often assume the other person has been on that journey with us and that they know that information. And I right. think I always say to people, don't assume that they know. And so these were some examples of things that I'm going to be using. Thanks to you, Ros. Thanks wow, to the thank book. You. In my work and in my emails, in my pitches to kind of say to people, okay, this is what I'm saying to you, but this is why you need to know it. Or have you thought about this? And those were just some examples that, that helped me. But I really think when people go through the book, if they get a pen and they, if you don't mind, and they, you know, underline <laughs> things, highlight not. things, this practice point that we've been talking about, it does take time. And that's the difference. It takes work. You don't just read a book, put it down and wow, you're this amazing communicator. No, take a pen, take time and almost like set yourself a homework or a challenge and think, can I use two of these phrases today? in my email. Can I use two of these phrases today in a conversation? And it does sound a bit like, oh, come on, Adrienne. But that is what I do. I will take a word or a phrase, which I know is going to make me a better speaker or a better communicator. And I'll set myself a challenge to think, okay, I need to use that this week. Well, I'm delighted to hear all this because, you know, for better or for worse, I definitely wanted to write a practical book. It seemed to me, based on my experience, that if you want to improve how you communicate, to your point, it's not like you read a sentence of advice and suddenly, fantastic, you've become this great communicator. Actually, quality explanation and quality communication is the outcome you will get from many, many different actions, some of them small, some of them bigger, all working in sync. And uh, the book is my effort to say, well, here are a whole range of different things you can deploy in different circumstances. And if you combine them, depending on the circumstance you're facing, the cumulative effect can be very powerful. And just to illustrate mm -hmm. that, you know, if I'm writing a script for one of my explainer videos, you know, even within a five minute video, there will be many, many small calculations we're making around the information we're passing on, the phrases we're using to deliver it. And we spend a long time on that. And sometimes it can feel, my goodness, I'm spending ages just on this one word or this particular rhythm of this sentence. But actually the cumulative effect when we do it well, and we don't assume we will, but when we manage to, is is quite powerful, I think. So I'm delighted yeah. to hear you're using those phrases. The other thing I would say about those phrases, and I'm, I'm keen on them, obviously, because I put them in the book, is they don't just help you communicate when you're talking to someone. They help you prepare to communicate because if you can't answer the question, the reason this matters is, if you haven't got a good answer to that, 
you can be sure that the person you're communicating with is not going to feel convinced of it. Or if you can't say, well, we need to look at this issue if we're to understand the, sub the subject we've already been talking about. If you can't make that link convincingly, you can be absolutely sure the people you're con you're communicating with won't be convinced of it. So yeah. it's not they're not just useful phrases to explain to people in the moment when you're communicating why you hope they would care about what you've got to say. They also force you, as you're preparing to communicate, to double check yourself that you are clear on the reasons why. Because yeah. sometimes, and I catch myself doing this all the time, we go to communicate and we know we're going to communicate on a given subject, but we haven't necessarily stopped to think, well, what precisely about this subject am I trying to get across? Or what precisely would I like as a response to what I'm try trying to communicate? Or what action am I hoping to spur by communicating this? And if you can be precise about what you're trying to say, what people would like to know from you, what actions you're hoping they might take having heard you, if you're precise on those three things, the precision with the lang uh, the precision of the language that you use around your communication is going to go through the roof. Mm, yeah, and also back to our earlier point around making things shorter and more effective. If you can't answer some of those questions, then sometimes it's like you don't need to put it in, take it out. So, for example, right. my husband and I sometimes do consulting for startups. So, in the well-being, fitness, and technology space. Mm. So, a startup founder, for example, or or an organisation that are trying to raise money, obviously they'll have a pitch deck, and they'll say to us, you know, what do you think? Can you look at it? Can you give us some feedback? And often, my first piece of feedback is it's too long you know there's 30 slides there's 40 slides it needs to be 20 so I think some of those questions I know that's kind of a different example but the reason this matters is if it's not that important take it out and as much as you want to give all the information to the person who potentially might be investing in your company or is going to help you to raise money so you can start your business I really think that often people just want to add more and more and more and more right. and you lose the effectiveness you lose the attention you lose the kind of um the punk you know the moments the punctuation because you've it's just far too long so I think it also would help people yeah to whistle down what's the most important information what's the reason that this is even in your presentation in the first place I love this advice. Whittling down is a great phrase. I call it tightening. When I go back to a piece of communication I prepared, say, let's take a presentation, for example, and I will ask myself every single step of the way through the presentation, is this part essential to helping me achieve whatever I'm trying to communicate? So in the mm -hmm. case of if you're pitching an idea, is this piece of information essential to the person I'm speaking to being able to consider this idea and be persuaded of it or to give ourselves the best chance of being persuaded of it? And I am increasingly ruthless, have become increasingly ruthless over the years, which is if it's just interesting, but it's not essential to the, the overall purpose of the presentation, it goes every time it goes because mm -hmm. The reality is that if you have 20 slides and five of them have interesting information that's not really essential to the overall purpose that you're doing this presentation, those five slides are going to compete with the 15 other slides which really do have the stuff that matters in terms yeah. of how much the person you're addressing is going to take in. And I really think, and I ask this question of myself every single day in a whole range of circumstances, is the information essential or is it interesting? And if it's just interesting, okay, there are some circumstances where you might want to leave it in. There are some speeches where maybe that is appropriate. But I would argue in the kind of presentation you're talking about, if it's not essential 
to the person being able to understand the idea and take a decision about whether to invest in it, it goes. Yes, I completely agree. And you used a word then that I just wrote down, which was persuading. You know, you said if you're trying to persuade. Now, in that example, you know, if you're trying to raise money, you're trying to get people to to invest in your business, people might say to me, well, okay, this bit of information isn't essential, but actually it's a motive. And I'm a human, I'm speaking to other humans and I want them to relate to this problem I'm trying to solve or this business, you know, the mission of the business is an emotive mission. So when it comes to, I suppose, yeah, that emotive element, we are humans trying to communicate with other humans. How much do you think we need to consider that? I think it's maybe from my experience, something I don't do enough of. Do you think it's an important thing to I think talking about the motivation to do something is absolutely crucial. I suppose the only uh, way I would gently kind of push back at your framing of the question is, I would say that is essential. I would say that okay. if you're trying to persuade someone that an idea is worth backing, engaging them with your motivation for doing this and why they might share that motivation and why the two of you combining to work together on something could have an outcome that's good for the two of you and maybe good for others as well that's for me that's absolutely essential Mm -hmm. because if people want to come behind an idea that I've got then I need to share with them the reason I'm really committing to it and why I think that they would benefit from committing to it too so yeah I absolutely think that's that's part of it and that connects to something that I know you've looked at a lot which is use of narrative and use of storytelling because often when you're trying to sell an idea you're essentially selling a story which doesn't have an ending you're saying there's a story here about something that we could do together this is how far I've taken the story so far and I'm hoping to join forces with you to go even further with it and as we all consume stories whether it's in a work context or otherwise emotion is always bound up in stories you want to know the ending is it going to be a happy ending is it not going to be a happy ending where is it going to go i don't know what's the twist what's the turn in what you're telling me and so if you take an example like my explainer videos which i started to think about in 2019 and then began as a as an experiment with a couple of close colleagues here at the bbc in late 2019 Go into 2020 when some of those videos had started to perform very well, much better than we had hoped for, to be honest. Then I started to speak to the, some of my editors at work and saying, look, I think we've got something going here. What do you think we can do about it? Because at the BBC, just like any big organization, you can get an idea so far, but needless to say, you need the permission and the encouragement and the advice and expertise of, of your seniors. And so when I was talking to my editors and managers about the videos, I was telling them a story which involved emotion, which involved, I think this is exciting for how we can explain the news. I think we've demonstrated that there's an audience appetite for this. And I think this is something that we can build on with your support and advice. And so for me, emotion is definitely a a part of that. It needs to be rooted in facts. It needs to be rooted in well-explained ideas. But there's absolutely a, an element to that, which is I am enthused, I'm motivated by what I'm doing and you, whoever you're talking, whoever I'm addressing at that time, I'm trying to pass on that enthusiasm. Yeah. And for me, that is as, as, as essential as passing on the hard facts of how many people have watched a certain video or whatever it might be. 
Yeah, and that's a, that's a very fair point that it is essential because I think perhaps I'm quite a harsh critic when it comes to these kind of business ideas where sometimes, you know, people might have quite an emotive reason and passion and motivation to start the, the mission. But I think often I'm like, okay, limit the, the part which is, okay, when I was, you know, 12 and then this happened and it made right. me feel this. And, you know, it's like sometimes... Of course, there is examples where, you know, the emotive reason is everything. That's the reason the business needs to exist. But I often think just keep it, you know, yeah, keep it. I'm, I'm like I said, maybe so, a little I mean, bit too I, harsh. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're, you're much more of an expert at, at these kind of business pitches than I am. But in the context of media and pitching ideas, yeah. certainly uh, when I'm trying to tell a story around an idea and how I believe that it could be something worth backing, while of course that story and my motivation to to pursue it is part of the equation it is always completely surrounded and underpinned by hard information as in in the case of media products it would be well here's the audience research that i think backs up the the fact that this is a good idea here's the response i've had to pilots that i've made here's what colleagues who i've shown this to are saying so underpinning that story has to be something that's real and something that's tangible because otherwise you're quite right if i just wandered into a room whether at the bbc or anyone else and all i had to say was a story and some hopes but it was they weren't rooted in in things yeah. that had happened in in things that i could prove that conversation is is unlikely to to have the outcome that i'm hoping for yeah exactly and I think that's a real key piece of advice for anyone working in I learned that I think working in the startup world was that lots of people have ideas lots of people have opinions but actually if you can do what you just said and underpin your idea with well actually here's some data so here's what our customers have been doing or here's what people suddenly it's not your anecdotal advice anymore it's not just oh Adrienne's preference it's actually no it's not my preference it's it's information that we can use that's useful and I was um I was chatting to a senior exec in UK media the other day about ideas and how he decides which ideas to support. And he used this phrase, which has kind of lodged itself in my mind. Uh, He said, we can all have good ideas. It's just about making them that's the problem or worse to that effect. And and what he meant was, and and this really resonated with me, is that I can sit on the bus and have an idea and it might be a brilliant idea or a rubbish idea or somewhere in between but let's be optimistic and say it's a pretty good idea that's just the that's just the start like that's um if you let I mean, we've been talking about my explainer videos and and their success well their their success is the is the outcome from hundreds and hundreds of different actions by me and by a number of other people at the BBC and at any point in that process if we hadn't done certain things well that outcome might not have happened the 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 outcome of the videos being watched millions and millions of times wasn't set by me sitting down in the summer of 2019 and having a thought about a product that thought was a starting point but it definitely didn't automatically lead to where we got to where we got to was the product of uh, many hundreds of different pieces of communication and actions by a much bigger group of people than just me I hasten to add Um, and so yeah I I thought that advice from this this person I was speaking to was good which is that having a good idea is difficult but it is just the start absolutely yes so if you a listener have a good idea then of course think about the execution of that idea because that is of course going to be uh, just as important if not more so
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm really enjoying this conversation, Roz. And as I said, you know, I've got, you know, got all these phrases now, highlighted things. I'm going to be trying to add to my, my emails. So let's see over the next few weeks if people notice, they'll be like, Who, who's writing these emails from Adrienne? They're very, they're, they're fantastic. Um, I really appreciated what you said earlier, which is that the, I hope people enjoy the book and can read it front to back and, and enjoy it as a reading experience. But I also hope it's a book that they can go back to and pick out the bits that resonate most with their lives or pick out a section and think, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to have an experiment with this first. Um, I didn't write it imagining that anyone would read the whole thing and go, right, that's it. I'm doing all of that tomorrow. That's obviously not a, a realistic way to go, to go about it, but I am hoping, and I'm very flattered that you're suggesting you might do this, that people will enjoy reading it, but will then start selecting certain elements of it and thinking, okay, I'm going to experiment with that and adapt that to the circumstances in which I work. And of course, some of that might work very well for them. Others, they might try and go, okay, I might just adapt that because that didn't, that wasn't the perfect fit. Mm. Um, and and so it's, it's very flattering to hear you suggest that you might do that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I am. And I'll, uh, I'll, I'll credit you where due. Um, so at this part of the show, I always ask my guests to talk to us about their power hour. So the first hour of every single day, and I've been calling it the power hour for a very long time. Far before I started this podcast, before I wrote the book, um, I always used to think, gosh, that first hour of the day, it is powerful because whatever you choose to do with it can set the tone for the rest of the day. Yeah, I and was, of course, I, I was aware you were doing this. And I was thinking the first hour of my my day doesn't always feel like the power hour. It certainly didn't when my kids were younger, but I'll, I'll take your word for it. Well, I was going to say, we're going to get into it. It's, it's so interesting hearing everyone's different, you know, power hours over the years. And especially as a, as a mother with, you know, a blended family and three children, this last month, the school holidays, when everybody's off school and, you know, there's, there's always different challenges and things change and there's the seasons um, in our lives. So right now for you, Roz, the season of your life where you're at, what does your power hour typically look like and how do you choose to start each day? Okay, well, the, the start of my day is is evolving uh, quite a lot at the moment because our our eldest daughter is in sixth form, but our younger daughter is about to start secondary. So the whole routine around going to primary school and walking up and dropping at the school gates and everything, that's all come to an end. So we are now in a situation where in the mornings, uh, both of our girls are going to be uh, largely looking after themselves and getting themselves out the door. So there's a bit more time than there might have been 10 years ago to uh, to, to get on with whatever, whatever I choose. Um, my first hour always features a couple of things. It always features checking the news. So I would check the news, I would suggest, almost always within 10 minutes of waking up. And there are two reasons why. One is that I've always been an, an enormous news consumer, so I would have done this even before I worked as a journalist. But the second reason is that the nature of news is you don't really know what you're going to be doing each day at work. And mm. so I will initially look at the news 
to see if there are stories that have happened that I think, okay, I'm very likely to have to work on this. And there'll be sometimes I'll look at the news and think, okay, there aren't any there that I think and I can do longer term work, but I need to know what's happening, partly because I'm very interested in it and partly because it'll affect what I'm doing. And initially, I won't read any of those stories in huge depth. What I'm trying to do is, first of all, get a, an overview of the main stories of the day. And then let's imagine, and this is more often than not, that there are stories that I think I need to turn to, or at least one. Um, quite quickly, I would start communicating with the producers who I work with, and also with my editors who often shape the work that, that we end up being on. So it'd be quite normal within that first hour for a few messages to be flying around. And we're kind of setting our course. It's not always a course that we stay on for the whole day. And it can ebb and flow, of course, as the morning goes on. But quite often within that first hour, and I've looked at the news and the messages are flying around, I'll have a pretty good idea before I leave the house, the kind of work that I'm going to be that I'm going to be going into. Um, Ros, I have to ask you, sorry to interrupt you, but I have to ask you, do you find that stressful? Because I know that for a lot of people, they'll say, I like to plan, you know, the day before, the night before, or they might say, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. I'm going to lay out these clothes and I'm going to prepare this. And we've talked about preparation. Obviously, it's your job. It's news. It's instant. It's happening. And I'm sure you've adapted to that. But yeah, do you find that stressful at all to have to kind of wake up and go, what am I doing today? I'm going to find out immediately. And within an hour, that's going to dictate what comes next. I don't know if I do find it stressful anymore because I've done it for a long time. I can remember when I first joined the BBC and that was my first full time. I'd worked as a journalist in other capacities, but that was my first job as a as a news journalist. And I can remember having, frankly, finding it quite stressful and even sometimes irritating that plans that I'd made at work, you know, I'd set up a discussion on a certain subject and then bam, suddenly something happened and it just went in the bin. And I can remember uh, having come from, for example, I worked at Time Out for a stretch where you would be working on features about travel or about restaurants and they always happened. You worked on them and they always happened. Work Going into an environment where sometimes you'd be working on something and then it just didn't happen or you ended up doing something else. Uh, even though I was a big news consumer, still came as a bit of a shock and it took me a little while to get used to it. However, having done it for a long time now, I am completely used to it. So it's very routine that we will have spent an awfully long time working on something and then a new story will happen and whatever we've been working on just, it just, it, it just gets wiped and you just instantly move on to the new thing. And, and you can't take it personally, can you? You just have to go with it. You definitely, you definitely can't take it. You definitely can't take it personally. And uh, the more years you do that, the more you get, the more you get used to it. There are certainly times when, um, you know, I would, I don't know. The other day, I was on, I was halfway home when a big story happened, and work calls, and you have to turn around on, get off at the next platform, and and go back in. But I wouldn't complain about that. I think journalists understand the the fact that we're explaining things that happen and we never obviously don't know what's going to happen. And so mm. for me, it, for me, it comes with the territory and um, and I and I've kind of got I've kind of got used to it. I also love the I like that feeling of waking up in the power hour, if that's what we're calling it. I like waking up uh, and kind of thinking, well, not just what subjects might we be taking on, but how might we take on those subjects? Because there are lots of different ways. We call them treatments 
in journalism. I'm sure people use similar phrases outside of journalism. So not only are you saying we're going to look at this story, but you're saying, well, what's the treatment? How what are we going to make in order to explain this story? And, uh, you know, our explainer videos are one format or treatment, if you like, but they're far from the only one. And so that combination of creativity in terms of the treatment combined with the intellectual challenges of explaining something that's just happened and placing it in context you know i obviously i'm biased because it's it's, it's, been, it's the career i've chosen to do but i find it incredibly invigorating and challenging mm. and the the unpredictability of it um i don't mind at all yeah yeah, no, that makes sense. It can be, of course, depending on your personality, quite exciting. Yeah. And like you say, the spontaneity of, of life to think actually, yeah. what am I doing today? Some people really, really enjoy that. And I know there are other careers, other careers that, that demand that. And some people say I could never work in that environment. It would stress me out. And other people are like, it's great. It's always changing. There's always a new challenge. There's always a new project, a new thing. And like you said, sometimes it just gets scrapped and we move on to something else and you just have to go with it. I, I give you I give you an extreme example from last year. Um, I did a short series on BBC One called Ros Atkins on the Week, and it was a Thursday night program uh, where we uh, took half an hour to to walk through and analyse the the main events of the week's news. And we'd done some piloting. We'd done four weeks of piloting, so we were we were well prepared. But the first one that was going to be for real that we were going to put into the public domain. Uh, it's almost twelve months ago now. And uh, it was a tumultuous time in Westminster. It was when Liz Truss was prime minister and she was under a, a huge amount of pressure, uh, particularly because of uh, the budget that her government had announced not long before. And we knew that she was under pressure. And in a very different way, we were under pressure because we were making the first edition of a brand new format, which was quite complicated to deliver. And we had to really sign off the whole script by about, four, five o'clock to make things manageable on the Thursday afternoon. And I forget the exact timing, but it was around half past one that Liz Trust resigned. And <laughs> so it's like the first edition of a brand new format, quite a complicated format to make. And uh, the prime minister resigns just a few hours before we need to sign all the scripts off and, and record them. And I can remember um, sitting at the desk in in new bbc's new broadcasting house and it happened and i was I had an amazing team of very very experienced journalists and we didn't know if liz truss was going to resign there were rumors but we definitely didn't know and we all watched on the tv as she uh as she resigned and there was a kind of collective kind of <laughs> as she announced it there was a kind of an intake of breath about three or four seconds where everyone went my goodness we didn't fully realized that was going to happen and then everyone just went back to work and and, and went back yeah. into the mode and it was kind of a good example of how uh journalists who have experienced these moments sometimes they they do create uh, you know you have to change your plans and sometimes those change of plans come very suddenly and you don't see them but that was a good example of how experienced journalists often will uh will take that will take that in their stride and just see yeah. it as part of part of their job and yeah. and needless to say when it's a moment like a prime minister resigning and you work for the you know you work for the public's a public service broadcaster you feel a, a keen sense of duty as well that this is a really important moment for the country so we need to uh, get on and make sure we can explain it as best we can mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I think the, the takeaway that I'm hearing from that is adaptability, you know, and it's not always easy, but as you just described in that moment, are you able to adapt? Are you able to continue and say, okay, this is new information. We have to change the plans. You know, some people really don't like to change plans. <laughs> I have one right. friend in particular, we laugh about it because she really does like to, you know, things are kind of set in stone. And I always, she, she jokes, she says she's trying to be more flexible, but yeah, I think being able to, to adapt, whether that is in your professional life or personal life, it, it can be a challenge. But Rose, as I said, I've really enjoyed this conversation with you, but I can't let you go without, of course, mentioning that the book is, I know it's available to pre-order, but it is out this week. So yeah, anything you'd like to add, I suppose, for the listeners to say, um, I know it's available everywhere and we can leave well, a link I mean, in the well, show notes. Uh, the only two things I'd like to say is, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It's been a, a fascinating conversation. I've learned plenty and um, really appreciate the invitation. And the second thing is that when I sat down to write this book, I was really clear in my mind that I hoped it would be a book that would help people who are journalists, and it's rooted in some of the techniques I've learned as a journalist and broadcaster, but I was really clear that actually what I was doing was trying to write a book for everyone, because how we communicate, whatever your line of work, how we communicate both from the small moments like a day-to-day -day email or a quick conversation in the office through to the biggest moments like a pitch or a job interview, really, really matters. There are hundreds of moments in every week of our lives where how we communicate impacts the interactions we have and the outcomes that follow those interactions. And I wanted to write a book that could help people navigate those moments. I'll let others judge whether I've managed to do that. But my aspiration was to write a book that's helpful to everyone. Well, I definitely think that you have done that. So you. if you've enjoyed the conversation and you want to hear more and learn more and practice these things for yourselves, then please do, of course, get a copy and we'll leave the link in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us. As always, I will be back next Tuesday with another episode. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.